Before I welcome on yet another amazing guest of the Live Inspired podcast, I want to celebrate with you what an incredible year 2020 will be. I've whispered about it on social media. If you've heard me recently speak at a live speaking event, I've made a few mentions to it there, and I've even shared a little bit of it on a Monday moment back in December. Well, my newest book, In Awe, hits bookshelves in May 2020. As you know, I wrote this book with my four kids in mind. These little ones have so much joy for the day and so much optimism for life. They have inspired me to recapture and harness my childlike senses of wonder in order to become more engaged, more successful, and more fulfilled in life. And in this world of negative news cycles, loneliness as an epidemic, and the chronic struggle of doing more and more and more with less and less and less, my new book, In Awe, will provide you the tools to help rediscover the childlike qualities of wonder, of curiosity, of openness, of belonging, and of freedom that will free you, that will permit you to live life more fully, more playfully, and more joyfully. As we dive into this new year, there is no better time than now to pre-order a copy of In Awe. It will remind you of what we once so freely enjoyed and how returning to it will positively transform our communities, our organizations, and our families. My friends, for a limited time, I'm including an interactive In Awe playbook with all pre-orders. This In Awe playbook will provide you hours of activities, giving you the opportunity to start implementing some of the lessons taught in the book as you joyfully await its arrival in May of 2020. So my friends, I want you today, before we go into this episode, to visit me at readinawe.com and pre-order your copy of the book. I believe it's the kind of book that's going to begin a movement reminding us that life is not always easy, but it is good, and the best is yet to come. So again, visit me, readinawe.com. And now, on to today's episode. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Today, we have an awesome episode for you. You're going to love it. Here we go. In his three-decade-long NASCAR career, Kenny Wallace has competed in over 900 races. That's a lot. 203 of those races included a top 10 finish. He was named the most popular driver of the year three different times. Incredible success. And yet, in spite of this hard-earned success, it has not changed who Kenny Wallace is today. Kenny shares the snapshots that changed his life forever, including the death of his brother, Mike Wallace's young son, and professionally helping Dale Earnhardt Sr. win the last race of his life. My friends, whether you are massively into NASCAR or you're not even sure how to drive your own vehicle, it does not matter because you are going to love the story, the heart, 
the passion, the honesty of our guest today. You're going to love hearing his humble roots that shaped him, the passion he has for racing, his recent self-reflection, and how he strives every day to become iconic, happy, fun, loving, perfect, best version of himself. So buckle up, NASCAR fans. Get ready to rock and roll down the speedway as we bring on my newest friend and yours, his name, Kenny Wallace. Kenny, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. I'm excited to be here. For the three people out there who have not heard the name Kenny Wallace, give us a snapshot of, of why many people do recognize the name Kenny Wallace. What, what is it about your past and maybe what you're doing today that has allowed you to grow in a little bit of notoriety? First of all, just being myself. Uh, born in 1963, downtown St. Louis. Dad, Russ, was a great race car driver, but so I love St. Louis, and I've always made a point to love St. Louis, you know, and tell everybody how great St. Louis is. And, and I would say the reason people might know who I am is because, you know, there's a whole long story at 56 years old, but I became a race car driver in NASCAR, the highest form of motorsports in the United States. And I was on TV every single uh, weekend. And then Fox Sports hired me. And then I went into a different stratosphere. And uh, when they hired me, I just was who I was. And you know, nothing was, nothing was produced. It was just, Kenny, go. Okay, thanks. <laughs> and that, that was it. It's the best of your work, and you and I were talking offline about how awesome it is to be who you are, to not put on false airs when you're driving or when you're accepting a trophy or when you are signing a check mm. or visiting kids in a hospital or being with your wife or kids. Like mm -hmm. It's amazing and rare to be who you are and to be happy with who you are when you're there. Part of the attraction to you and why I look up to you and always have, Kenny, is that, that that's who you are. And yet what I also know to be true is we don't get there by ourselves. Mm -mm. And we don't get there because we got a big old check at the end of the rainbow. You mentioned the name Russ. Mm -hmm. I know Russ was half of a duo who influenced dramatically your life as a child. Brag for a moment about what you learned about life from Big Russ. Well, it was twofold with my dad. What I learned from my dad, and I'll never forget it, was my dad, Russ, would say, now, mind you, I have to back up just a couple seconds, I grew up in a racing family. My Uncle Gary owned a OK Vacuum and janitorial supplies on Manchester, right at Manchester yeah. 270. And my dad ran the domestic side, like household vacuum cleaners. And my Uncle Gary, my brother Mike, they ran the big street cleaners. So that's the type of family. And my dad said to me one time, I'll never forget it, my nickname's Herman. And uh, he said, Herman. <laughs> He says, there's, there's parts replacers and there's mechanics. We're mechanics. And that really hit home. And what that meant was we fix things. We don't, we don't order a part. And if we need the part, okay, we have to get it. Mm. But for the most part, that stuck with me about everything. And, you know, growing up in Rolla, Missouri, and then, you know, Arnold, Missouri, everything was about what do we got? You know, how can we fix it? Uh, money, what is that? You know, until later in life, I realized I really needed money. Yeah. But that was probably the best thing my dad could have ever said to me. But, but the other side, the negative side was 
dad was born in like, I believe, 1934. And so if things didn't go good, if I didn't run good in a race, and I, nowadays I've, I realize I took it wrong, it was like, why? How come? I'm like, Jesus, Dad, I run second you know, to, to Dale Earnhardt Sr., but why? Later I learned that Dad wanted to know why so he could go tell his friends at the Waffle House on Sunday mornings. My dad's office was the Waffle House on Sunset Boulevard in Charlotte, North Carolina. But, but even way before that, I, I still felt like I was being roughed up. And now I'm totally pissed that I never realized that he was just trying to create conversation for me so he could defend me for his friends. Yeah, the reason- Did he ever tell you this or did you learn that through wisdom and secondhand? This was a big year for me. I, I think I learned it maybe a year or two ago on my own. I guess becoming a dad, you know, mm-hmm. I have three daughters and four grandbabies now. And boy, you know, I, I, I know my, my brain goes everywhere. But it's like Kenny Rogers becoming a superstar at 41 years old. That's right. I mean, I'm just starting to learn about myself at 55, 56 years old, you know. Tell me, tell me what you learned about yourself from a woman named Judy. My mom, wow, what a badass. Oh, totally. Mom's still living. You know, dad passed away yeah. October 30th, 2011. My mom uh, grew up in, in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm her. She's got a little meaner. <laughs> she, she takes n- no crap, tells you exactly what she thinks. So I think, I really think what I, I, I've got from my mom is um, I'm a diamond in the rough, though. I, I've cleaned up what I didn't like, what I watched my mom do. For example, go, she, t- she would take me to the mall in, in South County. And we were, there was a McDonald's there. Now, mind you, this this was big because I was probably eight, ten years old. We go to McDonald's, and uh, lady goes, uh, "Yes, ma'am, can I help you?" And my mom goes, "Well, I hope so." I'm like, "Oh, mom." <laughs> so I'm like, "I don't think parents teach you what to do, and also sometimes what not to do if yeah. you're paying attention." So my my mom is raw and so real to a detriment, right? But she's the love of my life. I mean, so where, where did your goofy, joyful, <laughs> attractive, playful optimism that you wear on your sleeve in every interview and in every time I bumped into you in the community, where did that optimism come from? I, I honestly think, and I don't know if I could ever remember this or say it again. I'm, I'm saying this to you for the first time. I've never had that question asked to me. My mom would always say, you're like your Uncle Sheldon. I'm not positive because of anybody around me. I'm not positive because my mom, my dad, my brothers. It must be from Uncle Sheldon Buckles. That was her dad's brother. Mm -hmm. But I met him one time. He was out in Canada, way out on the West Coast, maybe Edmonton. But it has to come from somebody I never met Mm. because I know the people around me and nobody around me. And I've said this before on the Dale Earnhardt Jr. show, Right now, I love this because this is like therapy for me. Were you more n- nervous in front of Dale Earnhardt Jr. or John O'Leary? Dale Earnhardt Jr. Come on, man. I was more nervous in front of Dale Earnhardt Jr. because I know your story and I can relate. And Dale Earnhardt Jr. is guarded. The reason I was nervous in front of Dale Jr. is because I know him, but he's guarded, just like his dad, Dale Sr. was. Dale Sr., as soon as you thought you knew Dale <laughs> Sr., well, man, Dale Sr. knows me. The next day, he'd walk right by you. I'm like... It just crush you, you know. So, so now I now I've learned my lesson. So with, with Junior, 
we are dear friends. And, and like we talked about, completely distant dear mm. friends. He knows that I have his back and, and vice versa. I know he'll do anything for me, but I've learned not to even try to be his close friend. I know we're super close friends. And that's why I don't even ever even talked about it, you know, but yeah, but no, I, I know your story. I can relate to you. You almost did not graduate high school. I read this somewhere and you, I believe spent 72 days mm -hmm. not in school. Right, true. Chasing the dream. Right. What was it about racing that caught you hard at such a young age? That is an incredible question. Wow, it's a wonderful time in my life. I can remember one night we got done racing at Lake Hill Speedway in Valley Park, Missouri. Now, I'm not saying this is right. Remember, I'm a kid. How old were you? Oh, gosh, maybe nine, eight, nine. We were at a Denny's. The end of racing season was starting to come. It was August, something like that. And my mom or dad just, I think they barely said, okay, now you got school tomorrow. I was destroyed, started crying because I felt like if I went to school in my strange way of thinking that it was going to take me away from the race car. I loved racing so much. And I don't even know, I don't even think it was the competition. I, 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 now that I look back on it, it was Rusty, Mike, mom, dad, all of us in the, in the shop, in, the, in our little two-car mm -hmm. garage. Mm -hmm. It was a way of life. I was so, and to this day I am, I was so in love with racing back then. And this is embarrassing for me to say, but I don't care. I remember being in, um, maybe it was sixth grade, maybe fifth, I don't know, Merrimack Heights. I remember sitting and, and thinking, can I move my body closer to which I think would be the racetrack? Mm. I mean, six inches. My love for racing, it was just crazy now that I look back and I think about it. I just loved going to the races, you know. It, it was the process, right? Mm -hmm. It's no different than growing up a Cardinal fan. I mean, like me right now, I, I know what highways I go. I go 55, I get off, I park at patios. I know the guy that, <laughs> that I pay the money. I feel like I'm taking a walk down memory lane with an old friend. That's awesome. Me too. Awesome. You, you mentioned your love of race, and I want to come back to it, but I want to talk about your love of something else first. Mm -hmm. When I see the biggest goofy grin on your face. You're usually not in front of a car mm -hmm. or an engine block. Yep. You're with a lady named Kim. Yep. I think you've been with her 35-ish years. Met Kim in, well, we got married June 23rd, 1984. I met her in 1980 as we were starting school, specifically second wing photography class. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm sitting in my seat and the bell rings and her and her sister are late coming into photography class. And now, mind you, my wife is like German Indian, <laughs> but I always say she reminds me of Sophie Loren. She, Kim, my wife's got that dark skin. Mm -hmm. Comes walking in like Bo Derek. <laughs> and, I, and I'm like, oh my God. So yeah, I chased uh, How that. old were you when that happened? Well, I graduated a little early, not because I was smart by any means, but because the way my birthday fell. So I was probably 16. So you met your wife when you were 16. When did you begin dating? We got into 1981. The school got going. I chased after her. She played hard to get. So I would say in the winter of 1981. Yeah. We could talk about what it was like in 1981, the, the puppy dog love yep. season. I'd rather hear about 2020. Yeah. And what it's like 35 years in and the mm -hmm. ups and downs of oh, life. Yeah. What is it about Kim that you are still so wild about today? 
The biggest thing is that she's all Kenny all the time. And it would crush me to let her down from things like ironed my clothes all the time because she wanted me to look good. Mm. You know what I mean? You know, when, when they were voting me for most popular driver, she was campaigning for me. She lived my life so long that I started going, gosh, this is really selfish of me because it's always about me. And I remember telling her all the time, hey, when we're done doing this, it's going to be all about you. You know, I mean, listen, we have been in big fights, hollering and screaming. <laughs> I threw something one time and she goes, oh, good, tear your house up. <laughs> it made me laugh, you know. She taught me a lot. But, you know, I always say that marriages are hard. Ours was not a bed of roses because I don't want people to think, you know, it, it was. I appreciate that. It was, it was hard. But I truly, my hand on a Bible, I love my, my, my wife more than anything in the world. You know, so th things, are, things are good. Things are different now because we're older. But, yeah, I think that's what it was, you know. And, and, and it was kind of the way I met her. She's still the same way to this day. Plays hard to get. I come up with an idea and she won't agree with it. It's always always has to be her idea. So I've learned she's learned to play my games. Uh, but it's weird. You don't think you're playing a game. It's just your nature. So if I say Kim, let's let's renew our vows. Let's do a twenty fifth. You know, let's get remarried. Oh, now hold on. No, no. And then like a week later, hey, let's do it. I'm like, <laughs> why do you do that to me? <laughs> We were talking offline before we started recording about tragedy. Yes. I've been through mine, you've been through yours, and every one of our listeners and viewers have dealt with theirs. All of us have a story. Yes. One of the stories that came up while you and I were talking is about a mutual friend of ours who recently lost his son. Mm -hmm. And you said, you know, I, my brother lost his son, and mm -hmm. I did not know that. I did not know that about Michael. So I would like you to share the story of what happened to Michael's boy. Kind of walk us yeah. down that path, because I think a lot of our viewers can understand this pain and this grief and how do you recover from it? Right. Well, my brother, Mike Wallace, uh, 1984. Now, I got to set the stage for you. 1984, I am a NASCAR crew chief. Now, th this is crazy. I'm like, uh, now that I do the math, I'm like 19 or 20 years old. And I'm a NASCAR crew chief, which at the time, I didn't think anything of it. Now that I look back on it, it's crazy. So... I get a phone call from my wife. She's screaming and crying. Anyway, let's fast forward. My brother, Mike, gets out of his pickup truck and looks and sees his son, baby Mikey, uh, you know, dead on the driveway in Arnold, Missouri. Now, I'm doing a lot of fast forward because yeah, yeah. I know details. We immediately get on an airplane from Charlotte, North Carolina. When I say immediately, I'm like like five o'clock. Maybe it happens around noon. I'm on a plane at five. And when I when me and Kim get to Lambert St. Louis Airport, my brother Mike and his wife Carla are there to pick me up. Now that I look back on it, I guess they were in shock. Mm. I go and help Mike pick the casket out. Now these are things I've never talked about to anybody except you. I don't know why I'm picking you. I think because I know you had a rough time, so I can relate. Listen, there was a massive amount of trials and tribulations through that whole situation. But, but you know, uh, there's snapshots about that, that moment, that, those times. And I'll never forget coming out 
somewhere around Baldwin Road, and there was newspaper stands, right? And there it was, the Globe Democrat or the Post-Dispatch. And, and the, front, the front page of the paper said something like, a Wallace Racing family mourns loss. Yeah. And there's a picture uh, of baby Mikey. And I was like, oh, my gosh. You know, so, uh, you know, now, and then now you fast forward so many years, my brother Mike has been, been roughed up, and I've watched him go through that, you know, and have to live with that. And, uh, but my brother Mike's paid it forward a lot, just like you are. So the way you and my brother Mike have in common is that Tony Stewart, the great Tony Stewart, three, four-time champion, but just always mad. Now, listen, I always do a disclaimer, and I mean this. I do really care for Tony Stewart. But, man, he just there, – it, it, there's always something. There's an edge. There's an edge or just something in his crawl all the time. And, and he's winning everything. He's living what other people would think a dream life. So my brother Mike – now, this is Tony Stewart telling me the story. Now, he says, Kenny, your brother did more for me than six therapists or psychiatrists could ever do. So my brother Mike went up to Tony Stewart and said, hey, and he talked to you, man. Here's what happened to me. And you're upset because somebody spun you out or, you know, something happened in your childhood or whatever. So the great Dick Trickle, who was my mentor, he, he tells me that, and, and I remember we take snapshots in life. Mm. And, and those, those are one of the snapshots. It's a big one. Yeah, yeah, a big one. So... Did, did it change the way you cherish the time? Because I, I think most of us young parents don't even realize the sacred gift that a child is. You, you put them to bed, you bathe them, you get through the day. Thank God, got through that day. Then you get on with the next one and you, you, you keep almost wishing the day away. Yeah. You were younger than that when it happened, which means you were able to see your children recognizing every day past little Mikey's age was a gift something that your brother never received with his son. Did it, did it change the way you, you raised your kids? 100%. So I, I'm drinking out of my own coffee mug right now. This is from my first grandbaby, Charlotte. That's we awesome. call her Lottie, Poppy's Coffee Cup. So what it did to me was, well, for example, Charlotte, my grandbaby right now, three years old. I look at her all the time. I go, Charlotte, Poppy loves you. I love you. And I, and I tell a lot of people I love them. And it all has the same meaning, but more maybe to my immediate family. And about two weeks ago, my wife said to me, Charlotte did something. And uh, she, Charlotte looked at my wife and said, uh, Grammy, Poppy loves me. He's <laughs> he says he loves me. And just in the rawest moment, you know, when you tell somebody you love them, if you if you tell them what love means, it looks... I love you. It means I care for you. It means I'm going to do whatever I can do for you. You know, you're, you're, I'm not going to ever pass up anything. I'm going to hear. I'm going to hear you all the time. Mm. And you know, I believe. You know, they just can't take things for granted. My, you ask my kids. My my kids, they're way more mature than I am. And, <laughs> and what? I, and and I mean, they they grew up more mature. Yeah. And I, I look at them all the time. I love you. Give me a hug. They think it's goofy, but I'm doing it because of what happened early in, in my childhood. I, I'm always curious when you meet a celebrity and you probably, you're so humble, you probably don't even identify with that term, but it is a reality. You walk into a restaurant, you walk into a Waffle House, you walk onto a raceway, people know who you are, and they don't so much know who your wife is or your daughters are. And I always feel for the kids. 
How do they feel when their daddy walks out for a family dinner, walks into that restaurant and everybody immediately pulls you to the side and wants a minute of your time? (laughs) You're the kind of guy that says, sure, you can have a minute or an hour. How did your kids and wife deal with that? I think they, first of all, I know for a fact, my wife was proud of it. She, her back would get straight, you know, that's my, that's my high school sweetheart. Now the, now the children, Brooke, Brandy, and Brittany, you know, Brooke's 32 now, you know, they're all right around, they're all, they all grew up within two years of each other. Now it's funny because now uh, my daughter, Brandy, the middle one, she's really, she can express herself like uh, Brooke, they're all wonderful, they really are. But Brooke is a little more guarded. Brandy will just say what she's thinking. I'm starting to learn that they're enjoying things now more because they're going, oh, now I know. You know, oh, you know, I mean, just the other day, Brandy said something like, uh, oh my God, thank you so much for watching the babies. Now I know, oh my God, I can't believe what you went through with us. <laughs> but, you know, they, they, um, they, they grew up, they watched it, they were seeing people, whether at Ponderosa yeah, or, yeah. or wherever we're at. And it's only nowadays that they're commenting on it. So my daughter, Brooke, the most mature one of them all. I mean, she's 32, literally going on 45. Seriously. It amazes me how mature she is. She she listened to some, one of my interviews a, a couple of weeks ago, and she she went on Facebook and made this wonderful post about me. Mm. Brooke, don't ever say anything about me, ever. And she's she's you know, behind the scenes, so to speak. And she said something wonderful about me. And I was like, oh my gosh. It's because she was listening to an interview that and she, I was that we were going through things that she didn't know about me. Mm. And I think they're all putting it together now. That's awesome. 1988, you were talking earlier about snapshots, these moments in time that changed the trajectory of your life afterwards. Mm-hmm. Martinsville Speedway. Right. I think it's September. Yep. You get a pretty big chance. Yep. You got a lot of big chances in your life. You're, yep. you're a self-made guy, but you did very little of it all by yourself. Right. Uh, you get a huge chance. Take us back to Martinsville Speedway, 1988. So I'm in St. Louis, 1986, 87, 88, and I'm trying to become a race car driver. I mean, and when I say this, I mean it. Like zero money. Uh not not borrowing money from people, but somehow, you know, Kim's working in the cafeteria, Pope's cafeteria at Manchester and 270, Jeez. then another one on Tesla yeah. Ferry. And and I'm working, I'm repairing vacuum cleaners, 86, 87, 88. My brother Rusty loves me, but never tells me he loves me. You know, he's tough, hardcore. He calls me up and he goes, hey, he said, I want to start a NASCAR team for you. I'm like, oh, my Lord. You know, now, remind you, in 84, I was a cup crew chief. I was at the highest form. As a kid. And I moved back to St. Louis. Yeah. So he calls me and says, hey, I want to move you back down here. I see what you've been doing. You know, he helped me along the way, a little bit here and there. And I couldn't believe it. But he says, NASCAR will not let you go to Daytona. You just can't show up at Daytona and run 200 miles per hour. NASCAR has to watch you. They have to approve you to make sure you can hold the steering wheel straight. At that time, 
my brother Rusty Wallace and his dear friend Dale Earnhardt Sr., the great Dale Earnhardt Sr., arguably one of the most famous race car drivers in the world yeah. by far. Rusty and Dale Sr. are like best friends. You know, Sr. acknowledges Rusty's talent. They're dueling. They're battling. You know, they're pressing each other. And Rusty tells Earnhardt that, hey, I'm going to start a, a team for Herman, which is me. So Earnhardt says, well, hell, let's put him in one of my cars. <laughs> we'll let NASCAR watch him. Well, I'd been cutting my teeth on the Midwestern racetracks like Milwaukee, mm -hmm. Salem, Indiana, Winchester, all these short tracks. Now we're going to fast forward. I get down to Charlotte, North Carolina, specifically uh, Kannapolis, North Carolina. I go to Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s, or Dale Earnhardt Sr.'s mother's house, okay? And I get inside the number eight GM Goodrich. Many of our listeners don't even know what that really means. It's big. You got to unpack for them what the number eight car means, what Earnhardt name means, and what this opportunity means for you. It, it would be like a baseball player in St. Louis wearing the number six, Stan Musial. You know, you just don't put the number six on. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's Stan the man. So number eight was Dale Sr.'s dad's number, Ralph Earnhardt. Earnhardt owned that car. Dale Sr. owned that car. Okay, now he drove other people's cars, but he didn't control the number. So number eight, GM Goodwrench was the sponsor. And Dale Sr. said, Kenny Wallace, come drive my race car. I'm like, <gasps> I mean, I, I'm nervous during this whole process, right? I get in the race car and I don't know why, but I'm pretty good at keeping my blood pressure down. They, they've checked my, they check your heart rate sometimes, you know, when you get ready for a big race. And I've always been able to breathe. So I get in the car and I think I finish 11th. NASCAR says, okay, they approved me to go to Daytona and be, become a NASCAR driver. So I have questions around that and questions around your career and 900 plus races. But I think the first one is when you race at 200 miles per hour and then you go back to the airport, you fly back to St. Louis, you get back into your used Toyota Camry. Yep. <laughs> good car. And you're on, man, I know you're sponsored, yep. baby. <laughs> you did I good. wasn't going to drop a Chevy or something on you right now. Please. <laughs> what is it like to go from 200 to 30? What, what is it like to go from that track and that competition and the heat of the battle to traffic on the inner belt, man? So 905 NASCAR starts. Uh, every bit of 800 of those after the race, I would get in whatever vehicle. <laughs> and, and my wife was with me 99% of them. She'd say, Kenny, watch your speed. And I, so I'd get out of the race car at Daytona, running 200 mile per hour, right. get in my rental car or whatever I'm in. And look down, and I'm running like 85. <laughs> so speed is relative. That's right. So when you're used to being in a race car, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then you get in a normal car, when you go 55 miles per hour, it's like, who made this speed limit? Yes. It's atrocious. <laughs> I, I feel like I can get out and walk, you know? So it, it was hard on me. And I really, you know, had to learn to look at the speedometer. We uh, are getting some questions from our, our followers who are paying attention online, but one of the ones already brought in front of me is from a guy named Patrick Berry right here in St. Louis, Missouri, and he wanted to know if your wife tells you how to drive yeah, and uh, if, if what you're doing is wrong when you're driving around together, because he says, my wife does to right. yours. Right, yes, so all like the time. Sounds like she does. Me and my wife just talked about this last night. We're in the kitchen, and I said, Kim, and this is 
verbatim, exactly. I said, Kim, you're the type of lady that stays in the right-hand lane on, on 270 going south for, the, for five miles because you know you got to get, get on 55 south. So Kim will get in the right-hand lane because she knows in five miles she's got to make a right. Me, I go <laughs> flying down the left, left lane, clear everybody. You're that guy, huh? And with about 500 feet to go, get, get over. Right. <laughs> how's, your, how's your driving record? It's good because it really is good uh, because there's there's, there's a twinkle in his eye, man. There's yeah. something going on here. NASCAR, NASCAR. Years ago, they said if you don't hold a valid driver's license, you that? cannot race in NASCAR. So I mean, listen, I'm no different than anybody else. We've had our speeding tickets, you know. But uh, yeah, I've uh, and I've got out of some specifically in Charlotte, you know. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah. you raced more than 900 times. I yep. Believe you won more than nine, nine, nine races. I've won nine NASCAR right. races, and I've won about a hundred short track, you know, dirt races in my career. Thirteen poles in NASCAR. Yep. Two hundred and four top ten finishes. That's yes. remarkable. One highlight, and I know it's almost impossible. It's like having you pick your favorite kid. Mm-hmm. What's the one highlight for you looking back on that? Oh that man, not the wins, not the most popular drivers, not some of my favorite trophies. It has to be helping Dale Earnhardt Sr. win the last race of his life, and I finished second at Talladega in the Winston 500. Arguably the biggest racing moment in my life because Dale Sr., forget about racing. I'm talking Dale Sr., just say the name. It's kind of like in the racing world, it's like Muhammad Ali. It's huge. Baseball players, football players, they all want to be Dale Sr. Every man wants to be Dale Sr. Mm-hmm. He was the Marlboro man. He was the, a man's man. And, and Sr. was good to me. Remember, he gave me my first start. We're there at Talladega, and we both have really bad pit stops with 10 laps to go. And my crew chief goes, okay, just change all four tires now. And so we change all four tires, and I come out dead last, like 30 or something. I look in my mirror, and Dale Sr., I mean, Listen, in those days, you looked in your mirror. <laughs> you know, Senior always wore an open-face helmet. It was so odd, right? It was, everybody else wore a, a closed-face helmet. Earnhardt, he wore them big old bubble goggles. And I'm like, holy moly. I keyed my button. I, I asked my crew chief. I said, what is Dale Senior doing behind me with 10 laps to go? And they said, well, he had a bad pit stop too. So they dropped the green flag. We go slicing and dicing. 10 laps to go. Now let me set the stage for you. If Dale Earnhardt Sr. wins this race, he gets a $1 million bonus. There's this deal out there called the Winston No Bull. It means he ran in the top five in the race before this qualifier race. So the top five from these races before, if they won the next race, they win a $1 million bonus. Well, I'm not really thinking about it. They dropped this green flag with 10 laps to go, and and I'm, I'm thinking about myself. I go slicing and dicing, and I'm making gains. I'm making big gains. Somehow... Senior gets by me, and he's wearing white gloves that day, right? You would think the man in black would be wearing black, mean gloves. He puts his hand up, and it looked like a paw. And, and I'm right behind him. I'm almost pushing him. And he's like, if, if I were to use words, it would say, help me, Kenny. Please help me. Dale Senior's asking me, Kenny Wallace from Arnold, Missouri, help. I'm like, okay. <laughs> we're all in this together. Let's go. 205, 210 miles per hour, I start pushing him. Now, in those days, you really couldn't bang into him, but nobody could get between us. I stayed loyal to him. He wins the Winston 500, 
wins over a million dollars. And when I get out of my race car after finishing second, all he talks about is how great Kenny Wallace is. Changed my life forever. I never heard that story. Oh, that's, I mean, that's accurate to the max. I mean, and, and Senior has 70% of the fans. And they all came to me. And, and then, you know, in February, the next year, he, he gets killed, you know, in a, in a wreck at, at Daytona, in mm -hmm. the Daytona 500. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it, my life is incredibly strange. It, it's, and like I said, I got about 100 trophies, and they all mean a lot to me. And I can tell stories about every one. But it's a trophy that I don't have. That's awesome. There's so much <laughs> meaning to that, man. That crazy? <laughs> so that's one thing that you love. Yep. What's one regret that you have? Well, I don't think I have regrets in the moment that changed my life. It's like this. It's like you know, my eyes are blinking right now. You know, it's that moment. It was, and we've made up since. Felix Sabatis, self-made mm. man out of Cuba. You know, the Batista regime took over Cuba. He escapes. His dad was big in sugar. And, and Felix Sabatis escapes to America, selling cigars at the Miami airport, literally goes right up here to Jeff City, goes to college, becomes a, a good millionaire. And fast forward to 93, asked me to drive his cup car, my biggest break of my life. The year doesn't go good. The crew chief convinces him that it was me. And like I told somebody earlier, maybe, maybe it was me. I don't know. But man, I didn't even get a shot and fires me. And, and at that point in my life, I have never, I, not just I had never been fired, but I have never been so humiliated. Mm -hmm. Because when, when you get fired from your first big ride, it, you're branded. it, 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 put, you're branded. it puts right. a cloud on you. And well, thank God that I recovered quickly. That team shut down. I went on to winning again the very next year in the Xfinity Series. But that was the worst moment of my professional career. I mean, professional career. I'm not talking about life. Yeah. It, it devastated me. You know, and there, there's a lot. Listen, I've had way more downs than good. I can name all the, all the bad stuff right away. You know, wrecking at Loudoun, New Hampshire, knocking me out, positional vertigo. My wife catching my vomit in her hands. You know, I'm, and my, my throw up is going in my wife's hands. That's another reason I love my wife. I had what they call a positional vertigo. Mm. I cracked three ribs. I was knocked out. I was laying on the racetrack, laying on the racetrack. And I thought I was at home sleeping. And I, and I heard the corner worker going, Kenny, Kenny. It felt like a dream. I opened my eyes. I'm laying on the asphalt. That, that moment changed me forever because it, it changed me. It, it, I was a little cocky up until then, I, I think. It knocked the crap out of me in every which way. People tell me my eyes were glazed over. I was just, I'm back to me now. But boy, that knocked the hell out of me. The final race, 905? Yes. 905 in Iowa. Yes. You're missing a piece of equipment, a helmet. Oh, <laughs> I thought, yeah. So, so if you look at all the pictures, it says 904 stars. Now, mind you, I had to make the race. So when I make the race, it becomes final 905. Right. So if you see any decals out there, it says 904. Once I make the race, we need to mark the four out, but <laughs> five. I was very lucky. I, uh, I was always good, 
at selling products. So I always had my own sponsors. And that's one reason that mm. I had such a long career. I gathered up like $125,000 from U.S. Cellular, gave it to the great uh, Joe Gibbs, who won all the Super Bowls with the Washington Redskins. I drove the U.S. Cellular car. So, I mean, there I am. And, and I already announced this is it, no more. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, they started, they asked for an interview and I, I forgot what TV network it was. It was a big network and they bring out this helmet and just the most incredible helmet. Actually, I have it and I brought it out for the first, I wore it there. I almost invited you to bring it down here, but I, I, I wanted to get your guttural reaction with yes. even defining it. It's so, you know, our audience isn't looking at it right now. Define what that helmet is, what's on it and why it matters. It matters more now. When I first saw it, I, I, I welled up. My family had a lot to do with it. So uh, Greg Stumpf out of Joplin, Missouri, becomes a famous helmet painter, moves from Joplin, Missouri to Charlotte, North Carolina, starts a company called Off Axis, A-X-I-S. He knows my daughters because they're all within the same age. And they, they pick out all these pictures that are meaningful in my career and, and put these pictures in such an engineering type way, you know, not painted, but put it all over my helmet from my family to my brothers, to my dad, to me and Earnhardt, all these snapshots. I put that baby on, you know, and it's the only helmet in my life. When my career was over, I brought it down to my living room in my house. So there, there's no, if you walked into my house, you would just think I'm a normal person. I learned that years ago, no racing in my house because it makes my, my brain wander too much. Mm -hmm. So I end up putting this helmet like in a curio cabinet. It, it's that artistically it's cool. It's gorgeous. And but we'll put pictures of it online and make sure that you all yeah. see it. But it, it's a work of art that it's you cool. got to wear in your head. And now it reminds you of who you are and how you got there. Yeah. It's, just, it's, a, it's a beautiful piece. So I'm seeing questions coming in from our community. Lisa L. wants to know, how did you get the name the Herminator. <laughs> Man, that's a great story. And this has to do with the city of St. Louis. So Bob Mueller owned a, a used car lot off Gravelway. He was bigger than big for me. He was a man's man. Big man, big truly a German man, mm -hmm. but crew cut. He nicknamed me Herman the German. Oh, Herman the German. Herman the German was a medieval warrior character, uh, and, the, and it, it went from Herman the German to Herman the Hermanator. But the reason he nicknamed me Herman the German was because my dad would win a lot of races at Lake Hill Speedway, Valley Park, Missouri, Tri-City Speedway, Granite City, Illinois. Dad won a lot. People did not like us at all. So me and my mom were always in fights in the grandstands <laughs> because people would talk Judy, horribly. man. Yeah, Judy. My mom, so they would they would say your your boys up in the sands fighting again, or or your your wife's in a fight. You know, <laughs> the races would be over. We'd come down the pits all junked out, and uh, he nicknamed me Herman the German. And what's cool about that nickname is when I moved quote unquote down south. When you say you're going south in auto racing, that means big time. And uh, Dale Senior started calling me Herman the German, Richard Petty, Herman. Well, they, they called me Herman. So. Yeah, there's a lot about that nickname. That's it's a great name. Brian G says, man, I'm a huge fan. I saw that you recently brought some NASCAR trophies out of storage. I love it. 
What else are you doing to embrace your NASCAR days that you previously avoided? I've recently, since the Dale Jr. show, I recently started, I don't want to sound too deep, but I, I've learned so much about myself. Yeah. It's a shame to say, I, I think some people find themselves earlier. When you're young, you're just going and doing, you're like, what are they talking about? I was the same way. But I had so many demons. You know, I really wanted to be Jeff Gordon. I wanted to be him. And when I realized I wasn't going to be him, it was just the biggest crushing blow of my life. To this day, I, I have found ways to deal with it, you know, but I thought I was, I thought I was great when I was a kid because mm -hmm. I, I, I had a lot of confidence, and I still have a lot of confidence. But, man, I, you know, I'm Kenny Wallace. You know, I mean, that's the way I felt. I had a lot of confidence. And, man, I, and, and then, then when Felix fired me, be, between me not getting what I wanted and Felix firing me and a couple other things along the way. Uh, I, so I made this video, and I didn't mean for it to, but it's gone, it's gone absolutely bonkers. I mean, hundreds of thousands of views by mistake. I just told a story about I hid my NASCAR trophies. I hid them. I truly did. It was, I, wanted to, I wanted to, out of sight, out of mind, I didn't want to remember that part of my life. That? I didn't acquire my goals. Okay, it would be like the kids wanting to make it to, to Bush Stadium and play for the Cardinals, and it didn't happen. So recently, I forgave myself, and I took all those trophies. And I mean a lot of them. Nine wins, three-time most popular drivers, polls at Daytona. I mean, I got some. That's cool all, stuff. It, so I brought them out, and I told the story. To, to forgive yourself, bring your trophies out, because we don't put trophies on display for other people. It's a reminder of what we've done in our life. And people, too many people think trophies are bragging. We're not bragging. They're memories. Mm. So we need to, it's, it's my opinion that people don't need to think that a trophy is bragging. It's for you. You don't put it out for anybody else. It's a reminder. Man, look at that. I remember that day. I remember that night. And, and so I told that story. That, that is so powerful. I, uh, I am reminded one of our mutual friends, a guy named Jack Buck, gave me his crystal baseball that he received when he went into the Hall of Fame. Dude, that's legendary. It is legend. It's just craziness. Heavy. So the fact that he would give this to a 22-year-old college kid. He well, loved you. No doubt. And I did not yet love myself. And so when he gave it to me, I buried it. And I kept it in a sock drawer for nine years. Why? Same reason you hid those trophies, man. Didn't like that part of your life. You didn't like who you were. You didn't like the relationship. You didn't feel worthy of it. And yep. you certainly did not feel like a success story. Right. And the trophies in some regards might remind you of who you aren't. Yeah. And who you wish you were. And so uh, I, I buried that. And then my mom and dad wrote a little book. I started to embrace my story. Now that ball, if you walk into my house, when you walk into my house, Kenny Wallace, you'll see that ball front and center, not as a brag story, uh, for me, but a, a reminder to all of us of the beauty of giving. And, I told and like you what we real trophies are about, man. Like it's not about. <laughs> I love it. Me too. But yeah. I, I hadn't thought about that in I, years. I just want to say one more thing because this is this is where I'm at in my life. It's like when people say, "What do you got in your DVD or podcast or whatever?" Right. You know, don't think that winning is bad. It is the strangest thing in the world. There's a phenomenon out there, like Coach Belichick and Brady with the Patriots. They are in fear. People who win are in fear that people will, will think badly of them. That That's is right. so dumb. It's a bad word, dumb. But it, It's you, a perfect word. You shouldn't think like that. Now, there is etiquette, right? Hey, I won, man. Woo! I'm excited. You know, 
And then maybe you you celebrate that win until mm-hmm. the next one. Mm-hmm. You know, if you win that night at Bush Stadium, celebrate till noon the next day or whenever you got to start over. But the theory of don't celebrate is atrocious. It shorts you of joy and happiness. So, you know, that's what I learned about myself. I, it is the weirdest phenomenon that I've just caught on to at 56 years old. People win and you're supposed to act like it don't mean nothing because you're worried that somebody else is going to be mad at you. Dumb. You also, <laughs> you also mentioned something else that's dumb is you, you recognize about yourself 56 years in that you are happy. And you're also recognizing, and it's surprising to you that most people aren't. Yes. What would you say to our listeners, our viewers, people we bump into the street who, uh, not through depression or mm-hmm. grief, but just through the misery of daily life, the monotony of, of existing, right. they're bored by their existence and they're not happy. What would yeah. you say to them right now listening? I would say this. And it's, you know, I have so many things that I've learned, right? But I just got to tell you, if I could just, I need one minute with them. And I would say, you know, look, I grew up the way I am. And every single day of my life, when I went to school, everybody told me I was weird. I'm crazy. And it took me till this year to understand. It took me to, you know, it hurt my feelings a lot. And I, and I learned that I'm completely abnormal. I never realized that being happy is abnormal. It is a fact that being happy is very abnormal. Sometimes I feel like I'm the only happy person in the world. And that's sad. People should work, not mask it, but you should work. This is what I learned. You should work at being happy. People say to me sometimes, how are you so happy? Is this fake? I'm like, look, being happy is a lot of work. Hmm. Try it. You know, and I'm not preaching. I'm just telling you my story. So finally to this day, I mean this day right now, I just, I can't believe that. I grew up my whole life misunderstanding that people, A, didn't like me, couldn't stand me because my laugh is loud. I'm bodacious. I mean, I am overbearing sometimes to me. (laughs) <laughs> because I have Tourette's and ADD and I'm hyperactive. I wear me out. There, you know, there's two or three of me. There truly is. But don't don't settle for asking why am I on earth? Mm. Don't ever do that. I would say don't ask why you were born. Enjoy it. Seek help if, if you're not happy why you're born. Because that's a true phenomenon. I don't know why I'm born. And people seek out religion for that, you know, to go to, to go to the Lord, you know, why am I born? What's my purpose on earth? I just say, enjoy every minute. Go to baseball games, cardinal games, you know, just do. You've been, you've been enjoying every dang minute of it. And we have, Kenny Wallace, just a few minutes left together. I wish Darn we it. had a couple hours left and we will do this again with your permission. Yes. Seven questions that we ask every one of our guests. Okay. And so they tether astronauts and artists and magicians and musicians and everybody else that you can think of that we can look up to. And you're one of them now, man. Mm -hmm. But what is the best book that you have ever read? That's question number one. What is the best book that Kenny Wallace has ever read? Probably my most recent book. First of all, there's an Aerosmith book written by Steven Tyler that I really liked. Maybe it's Walk This Way. I think it is Walk This Way. And that book changed my life because Steven Tyler and Joe Perry would get in these arguments. And, and Joe Perry would always say to Stephen, why this, that, or that? And he said something that I kept with me my whole life. He would look at Joe and he'd say, it's part of the journey, man. 
In other words, Joe was always, why this, why that, this, that. And Stephen was more of a free spirit like me. But when I read that book, and there's a lot of other great yeah, things yeah. in there, but, but just out of that whole book, Joe, it's part of the journey. Question two, as you journey on, as you looking back, what's one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a little boy in South St. Louis that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I am told that when I walk into a room and it's quiet, it's not that I talk, it's just that I break the silence. Hey, how you doing? My name's Kenny Wallace, my CPA accountant, Ashok Chagar from India. He'd say, <laughs> he'd say, Kenny Wallace, you got that, you know, that dialogue. Yeah. Kenny Wallace, you've changed me. When we met, I was very shy, very shy. And now I go, hello, I'm Ashok Chagar. Introduce yourself. You know, I always did that. People go, oh, man, you're so funny. You come in, you go, hey, I'm Kenny Wallace. I'm, I'm like, I am. I, I don't know you. <laughs> and, and so, so How cool. I would just say, hey, I'm Kenny Wallace. And they're like, I know. I'm like, I'm sorry. I, did, I didn't know that you know who I was. If your home caught fire, Kenny Wallace, and your children, your grandchildren, your wife, all the loved ones, all your animals are out safely, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, whatever that might be. What's that one item that you would come running back outside with? Oh, man, that's heavy. I've never in my life thought about something like that, but I have thought about fires in my house. And this is not a lame answer. I loved my dad with all I have. Although, you know, we didn't have a bad life, but, mm. you know, it was 50-50. You know, I got some of my dad's stuff still. So I'd have to, I'd have to grab that. What's the one thing from your daddy's stack of stuff that you would grab? This is crazy. When my dad died, my mom said, go through your father's closet. Rusty and Mike weren't there. Of course, I never kept anything, hid anything. You know, when you're born in 1934, you, you, those guys hid money everywhere. <laughs> It'd be a $20 bill here, right. $100 over here. When you're born in 1930, you're waiting for Armageddon. So you're stashing money everywhere. So my mom told me this. So I went through every coat. I went through everything. Back in the day, they made these little bitty pictures. And it was a picture. My dad kept this small picture of him as a boy. Mm. And, and, I, and what's crazy is I, I have that same picture of me when I was a boy. And I, I think it's just the craziest reminder that when we grow up, we, we think we have to grow up. When in reality, aren't we, weren't, weren't we all kids? Us, I mean, oh, would you just come right out of your mom and go to a, a grown-up? No. So it would be that. That's beautiful. If, if you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day like the one you and I are, are enjoying today yep. and have a long conversation with anybody, yeah. anybody at all, living or dead, who would you want to spend a day with talking about life? Well, once again, that would have to be my dad. And, and I would ask him things that I never had enough nerve to ask him. You know, never did. And listen, we, we met for what's your What's the one question you would ask dad? Why the hell was I never good enough for you? And what do you think his answer back is? I didn't mean it that way. I just wanted to know so I could tell my friends. What's the best advice that your father or anybody else ever gave you? So what's the best advice Kenny Wallace ever received? There's a handful, but I want to think of my brother Rusty right now. Hope for the best, prepare for the worst. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? 
calm down. <laughs> when, when I was young, I thought everything was about Dude, right now. Dude, if I now. see you today in your mid-50s, and this is who oh, I get, I cannot imagine 35 years ago. I wore me out. I, when I, I, listen, Tim is a, a saint. I would never, ever want to be in my 20s again. <laughs> Fun, but so many worrying about, you know, when you're young, you're worrying, can I, am, am I going to be able to support myself? If right. I don't support myself, well, people think I'm a loser. Man, for me, the perfect age is about 46, in my opinion. Awesome. Kenny Wallace, it has been said that all great drivers, crew chiefs, servants, sons, grandfathers, husbands, leaders yeah. can have their lives summed up in one sentence. Right. How would you like your one sentence to read? Oh, gosh. I don't want to sound cliche. What, what a ride. I, I'm thinking, how would I want my life summed up? Excessive happiness from Paul Patch. <laughs> the story when, when uh, Robin Williams yeah. was in trouble and got fired for being too happy. Excessive happiness. Died of excessive happiness. <laughs> Man, he was happy. I don't understand that. <laughs> what an awesome way not only to cause death, but to go through life and to truly live. Man, I want to thank you for representing NASCAR, representing St. Louis, representing men out there, boys, you. girls. Who, you too. Man, there, there's so many folks that think the dreams are over, that the American dream is dead, and then they see you, and we recognize it is alive and well, but you got to chase it. So yes. thank you for chasing it. Thank you for being my friend. My friends, that is Kenny Wallace. I am John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. I wanted to extend my most sincere thank you to each and every one of you for listening in your car, on the bus, while you're training for your next 5K, however you're listening. You, my friends, are a critically important and valued member of our Live Inspired community. If you ever want to get in touch with me, I'm always available on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. And you can always send me an email anytime at your convenience to podcast at johnolearyinspires.com. Again, that email, podcast at johnolearyinspires.com. We've got a lot of awesome episodes lined up for you in the next couple of weeks, and I'll be looking forward to welcoming you back next time. My friends, today is your day. Live inspired. <laughs>